Welcome. Nice to see you on a lovely late spring evening. <clears throat> to come uh, into a community that explores some of the deepest and most profound uh, perceptions and truths that we can we can see in our lives. Uh, both can be uh, anxiety-provoking, yet uh, ultimately uh, very satisfying. In fact, uh, the uh, degree of contentment is proportional to the fear we have going in. And uh, there, there can be a great deal of inward satisfaction when we take on a, a subject of this magnitude and, uh, and really uh, stay with it a little bit to show some... Uh, a willingness to listen and to stay uh, receptive so that what is being said can try to get in a little bit through our defense mechanisms because we're really looking at, in the series, Dependent Origination, we're really looking at the science of perception. Science of perception. Whether what we have taken life to be, how we perceive it, to be the actual fact of what it is, how it's laid out. And it's, uh, we're both afraid that the answer is no, it's not the way we think it is, and excited about the possibility that it could be more beneficial. Uh, but uh, both of those weigh in. In fact, they form uh, mixed intentions within us. One intention is very much on board with the adventure of it and the sense that something uh, revealing will uh, show itself. And the other intention is buried deeply in the shadow of our unconscious that fears that uh, the revelation that may occur uh, might disrupt us uh, to such a degree that we wouldn't know how to get our footing back. So both of those are, are um, uh, ways that uh, provide a kind of ambiguity to the subject. Fair enough. But so I'm not, uh, well, I don't want to force anybody, uh, but I, just that willingness to receive, okay, let me just look, let me just hear what's there and see if it has uh, filters down to make some sense for me. Uh, rather than uh, any kind of a co- coercive, uh, you know, of uh, or any f- a forced sense of uh, of getting this subject and working with it, just just that sense of relaxed participation, relaxed listening. So the science of perception, uh, when we look out, we see life in a very uh, typical way. We see ourselves sitting wherever we're sitting and we see life external to us. And it feels as if we are cocooned within that life, that there may be other forms of life, but it's all individuated outside of my life and that there's no connecting membrane or sense that these, th- these bits and pieces of life have any uh, uniformity at all. And uh, so... Uh, it's like, well, how am, I, how am I to understand whether this is 
the real perception of life or whether this is a distorted perception of life. Well, we can't do that uh, from the mechanical nature of the mind, as we've already seen that the mind is very conditioned. It's a conditioned product. This arises, this arises along with it. That sets a tone and environment for this to arise. And when that arises, this arises. It's a very mechanical uh, juxtaposition of different of different lengths coming together and showing us in making us think as if this what we perceive is in fact the truth. So we can't rely on the mechanism itself, the mechanical mechanism to show us or reveal anything new. It just shows us the mechanics. It can't even show us the mechanics because for it to show us anything, it has to be outside the mechanism itself, does it not? For us to be able to perceive what is occurring in the mind, we have to have something, a tool, which shows us, which reveals that to us. It has to be outside of that mechanical process. And that's the salvation. That's the only way we will ever know what the mechanical process is, is to have that tool available to us. And sure enough, the tool, of course, that we use is awareness. Awareness is that uh, all-pervasive quality of life that always reveals uh, what is arising. It's the very fact of being able to perceive not what we perceive, but the fact that we can perceive. Not what we hear, but the fact that we can hear. Not what we've on and on. Is the okay? Okay, so I have to. This is not working. So uh, can I get uh, right in here? I'll just get it. Bear with me for a minute or two here while we change uh, batteries. Somebody that can see better than I can, would you mind coming up and opening that? Oh, great. See, this is a negative here. This is positive. Okay, let's try this. Hello, hello? Okay, thank you for the, your patience. Thank you for signaling me. So, uh, when we discover what the aid is in being able to perceive the mechanism, then we can actually discern whether the mechanism the perceptional mechanism, how we see the world, 
as we look at the way it unfolds through experience to see whether there's any distortion to it and within it, right? And that awareness will show us the distorting element. So it's, a, it's, the, it's what we count on. It's the only thing we can count on because it's not mind-based. If it were mind-based, again, it would be part of the distorting thing itself. But because it's not, uh, it's not a, from the mind that we can count on it and uh, rely upon it. So uh, in order for us to get a sense of whether or how this is being distorted, we must start with the raw data. So tonight I'm going to talk about the six senses and uh, just tr try to get a sense of what happens to these this stream of data as it's coming in through the six senses. And you say, wait a second, there, I was trained that there are only five senses, uh, but there are actually six in the sense that uh, the Buddhas, in Buddhism, uh, one is uh, the formations of mind, ideas and thoughts and other formations is itself coming into awareness. Itself is, is one of the things that's arising uh, and when you, you can hear the sounds and smells and tastes and touch, but you can also get a sense when we are settled enough in meditation that thoughts are arising as another component of our experience. And so that's why it's called a sense door. And uh, so then uh, we get a sense of, okay, so the senses arise through these six sense doors. Now, they need to land somewhere. And this is why the six senses are um, the fifth or sixth link. I don't have lost count at this point. Because where they arise in, in order for them to come in, they have to land somewhere. You can't just have a streaming of events that doesn't somehow get coordinated into a uniformity, into a context. And so... The six senses need consciousness, which we have seen as a conditioned quality of mind itself based upon other factors. It needs a consciousness that can support it, that can make sense of what the data is that's coming in. And then we need the ability to name it and to form it into something. So the six senses bring in this data and as we form it in mind through consciousness, we can now call it something, and we also have an experience of memory associated with it and our general context of what it is, whether we like it or not, or whether it's been helpful or not in the past, and the whole circumstances and story and narrative and all of that is, is what the six senses come into and how they're coordinated in alignment with that. Now, that's an amazing thing. That's, this, this is truly amazing. Because as I'll get to in just in short detail, all of this, all of this is just six senses coming in. I mean, the rest of it is mind created. What is coming in are six different channels, you might say. And they're sort of flooding the mind, and the mind is trying to make sense of these six channels as they come flooding in and make it into a cohesive narrative so that I know and understand the world that I see. 
And that takes some memory and experience in order to do so. In fact, uh, as I've mentioned before here, but it seems relevant now, uh, I remember a study where people who were blind at birth and uh, never had the opportunity to have sight uh, had an operation that was discovered after, sometime after they uh, were blind for a number of years in childhood, and they undertook the operation, and then, you know, their blindfolds were, after the operation had healed, they had healed from the operation, their blindfolds were taken off, and uh, they, there were reporters around, you know, hoping to catch what the world looks like from sight, for the first time when somebody sees it. And what every one of these people did was to ask to have the blindfolds put back on. It didn't make any sense to them. It was just data coming in that had not been organized because it had no experience in relationship to what those images that were cast in the, in the psyche were about, what the context was. So you, I mean, this, it shows pretty dramatically that along with all the other sense doors, that each sense door is a coordinated, is a coordination with, that lives within each of the different expressions of the senses as they arise. So that we see somebody, we also know them by the voice or by their size or by the different, or their uh, physical sensations or whatever it is that we do. But we can, we can, uniquely pinpoint an object by many different qualities of senses of the senses so that's a collective influence of dependent origination as we then use our senses to navigate through the world you might think of the six senses as sort of the raw material the letters on which the narrative of our life is written and they, they provide the, the basic uh, formative material on which we can build then internally our responses to that, to that data. So uh, dependent origination begins to answer the question as to where our information about the world comes from. And the influence of the past upon the present. Now, uh, this is important because really the whole, there's just, there's a single experience that all of us who have meditated for some time quite likely have had. And that's the experience that when you sit down and you're quiet enough, you may have a glimmer that all, everything that's arising is arising now and that even the thoughts about then or the thoughts about will be the future, are also arising now. That insight is really where all this comes from. All of dependent origination really forms itself from that central insight. And I'll explain as we go on here how that happens. But to get a sense that what we think of is past and that all the things that build upon the raw data of our senses is what we have previously thought about that data to organize it, 
so that we can find the right shelf that that book about it is on. We've, we put it under a, you know, in the library of our minds. Uh, all of that is arising now. We think, when we have an, a memory, we think that that memory signifies some time different than that. Because the context of the experience seems to indicate a previous moment than the one that's actually happening. Right? And so when we lose ourselves within the context of what it's saying about the present from the past, then essentially we have lost the sense of the present because we have, we rest our confidence, our uh, stability, our, our pillar in the fact that the past has a true reference to the present moment. And therefore, if I just start thinking, that once we give, once we give val- validity to the past, then it's very easy to give our lives that same validity by thinking in terms of the past. Now I can just go, just think about, you know, where I've been and all the people I've known and the joys I've had and the sorrows. And, and that provides me a beautiful context to kind of, to kind of arrest from the, the more difficult displays of the world that are coming in. So it gives me a way that I can, I can take refuge from myself, from what the mind is currently doing. What we lose when we do that is the fact that the past is occurring now. We don't know that. You can't simultaneously luxuriate in past memories and also know that the past thought is occurring now because when you know the past thought is occurring now, you can't identify with the past as a luxuriating experience. It takes that from us, you see. And so we think, well, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have last year's vacation. <laughs> At least I can, you know, than to have the, the context of knowing that last year's vacation is happening now. And not, so I, you see, it's like, why, why would I, you know. So you can see what we're up against here. It's tremendously difficult to, to reorient ourselves to that very simple yet profound insight. Now, I'm going to bring on a a famously conveyed uh, sutta. The Buddha talked about, he called it the all, A-L-L. It's called the the Sabah Sutta. For those who like such things, it's in the Samyutta Nikaya 35.23. Just ask me anything about Buddhism, I'm just... <laughs> and he says, okay, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to teach you wh- what everything is. Okay, so listen. <laughs> he said, uh, formed reality holds the six senses. The eye and form, the ear and sound, the nose and aromas, the tongue and flavors, body and tactile sensations and ideas and thought. That's the all. That's everything.
You see what he said? That takes everything. That's it. All we have are these present streams occurring spontaneously through the sense doors. Everything else depends upon our losing the context of the present and moving back in time, referencing the past to these six stream channels that are coming in. Now, some of us have had a meditation experience, I'm sure, where you're quiet enough and silent enough in yourself that you really get a sense of these six channels coming in. Present tense. And then getting up from the sitting and having the context of how those all fit into my life and where I need to go and where I have gone and where each of the senses channeled, the, sen- the channeling senses that are coming in, the flooding of the data, has relevance to that movement of where I need to go and where I've been. But the fact, the all of our experience, including what we have made from the experience, is happening now. Because what we have made from the experience, the memories associated with those experiences, the like memories, are thoughts and ideas that are arising in present tense. So you can begin to get a sense that, this, that, that the entire stage of our life is really present tense. But look how we lose our footing within that. And what does that give us? You see, it gives us a perspective. It gives us a distance from. It gives us a reflective component with. I can now think about where I want to go and what I need to do. As if the thinking about was in truth the future component of where I will be. So you get a sense that what we do to the all of our experience is make it into a three-dimensional representation of the present. And we invest our interest and our uh, sense of worth not so much in where we are because that's just the streaming of data but where this data will take me. What are its advantages and disadvantages and its reflective quality and its meaning and its purpose and its intention. And all of that gives me the context to believe in my life. Well, guess what? Even the sense of I is part of the all of the data streaming in. Because the sense of I, who is gathering this memory, who is plotting his or her course through time is an idea of the mind arising now. The sense of I, the sense of me, if we are quiet enough, can be 
felt, can be seen, can reveal itself as an idea of the mind that is using the context of the data to reflect upon the data to decide where it wants to take this data and move it. But that's not happening in truth in the present, in the future or past tense, it's happening in the present tense. Now you can see why the distortion occurs. Why does it look as if I'm here and you're there? Because the sense of I, which is a, remember, which is an immediate experience here and now, is posturing itself, the ideas that are arising from me and the sense of me, it's not being seen as an idea, it's being seen as something that is reflecting upon something else. And so we've lost our footing. We don't see the context of how I is an idea any longer. We think it's the placeholder that knows or has and holds the memory so that it can move forward or move back in accordance with the data that's coming in. That's a distortion of perception. And that leads to the sense that I am here and you are there. And that there is time needed for me to cross this barrier and distance that separates us in order to rejoin. And all true authentic spiritual practices, regardless of what traditions they come from, have to cross that imposed imaginary barrier of separation in order for it to, to reap liberating freedom that many traditions offer. So what does our meditation have to do with that? Well, it may not have anything to do with that, depending upon how you're using the meditation. It's not a given that how you meditate will have any impact on that whatsoever. Especially if, while you sit, you keep thinking about yourself and what you're going to be doing or what is coming in and not seeing the sense that yourself is an idea within the present. And therefore, we reinforce the distortion as we sit. We further encourage or condition the distortion into our city. And some of us, because what does happen in meditation is that the comforts of quietude and the sense of actually, you know, being settled are so uplifting, so joyful compared to the life we live from this distorted perception that we sacrifice the depth of meditation for the brief comforts of contentment. It's okay. You can't hurry that, but you just need to know that that's what's going on. Just need to know where in your sitting is there anything outside of the meditation, the meditative moment? The seeing, which is all-encompassing, 
The seeing that reveals. Is it revealing where I am sitting? The sense of I is taking its place, its position. That's the fixed idea. Now, let me bring in the unformed. The Buddha said, this is all. In form, this is all. This is our lives when they are formed. This is what it looks like. This is it. It's sense data. That's it. That's the entire representation of our life. The rest the mind does through magic. So what happens, see? We get so used of the reflective quality for protection. Like I need to sit back here and see if this situation is is safe and if I feel like it is then I can venture forward into that situation and I have to be careful about that person because I've had a bad experience with her and again I have mistrust of that person or whatever it might be and so I have it all kind of laid out in front of me and we think that that component of mind that reflects and decides and ponders and positions itself in reference to to outside of the stream of events. It positions itself outside of the stream of the all. Even though it's part of the all, it positions itself outside of the all to reflect upon the rest of the all, just not to include me, is all. And we need it. And we need it so that we can be safe and defended while we go forward. So what's really happening is that awareness... The unformed has the quality, there's a quality to awareness, and that's the quality of knowing. And and not knowing as an intellectual experience, but the direct perception that something has occurred. Okay? So you're not, you don't have to think, oh, he's moving his hand through the air to know that something just occurred. That's awareness that sees that something just occurred. Okay, so here's, here's the, we've said that before, but here's the confusion. Is that the conditioning components associated with knowing, that knowing, the raw knowing, are onto that. And so very quickly, after it perceives something occurring, it provides an intellectual response to what's occurring, an intellectual knowing. Oh, he's just waved his hand through the air. I know what's happened. And with that intellectual knowing comes the sense of me who has that knowledge base. When the actual knowing itself didn't come from the intellect at all. The intellect, very quietly, in a very su- it's very subtle, sees the the knowing of the formless, sees the knowing that is intrinsic to formlessness, to awareness itself, and then uses that to build upon an intellectual response to that knowing, even though there's a distance, a gap, a space between the two. It's like you listen to a bird and you think, oh, that's a robin. 
but the hearing of the bird and the thought that it's a robin were actually two separate events. There's the knowing of the bird, there's the knowing of the sound and then the labeling of the sound or the sight as a robin, which came, was the intellectual response to just the revelation of the knowing that came from the unformed. Is this making any sense at all? Okay. Just stay with me. Just let it in. Just let it in. Let it just, just use it like a bath. You know, like, okay. So I don't have to understand this. I just need to, just need to get a sense of how this, how this moves my life. So this, the memory of ourselves is constantly that idea of ourselves we won't let rest. We just keep provoking further sense of ideas about ourselves. And it makes it seem as if the idea of ourselves precedes or moves into the next moment, doesn't it? Like I am moving into the next moment when actually the thought that has produced the sense of I is a momentary a momentary manifestation. It is not a continuous manifestation. But because it's so quickly done, it's so quickly like a machine gun, it's very, very rapid, some two billion responses per blink of the eye, said the Buddha, or some, some number like that. Anyway, it's far greater than our ability to detect. In that rapid succession, we, like a single framed movies that are, are run at a certain speed have the context of movement, so too does the eye have a context of movement. Now, I always try to find new ways to introduce you to that topic. So years ago I read this book, and I just uh, I want to bring it up. It's called On Having No Head. It's by D.E. Harding. I think it's in the 60s or sometime like that because it was a long, long time ago that I read it. Um, but in any case, whatever the 1970, 61 was his first printing. Uh, I just want to read this to you a little bit and work yourself into the perception that he's having. Okay, this was an insight that occurred to him. He said, the best day of my life, my rebirth day, so to speak, was when I found I had no head. This is not a literary gambit, a witticism designed to arouse interest at any cost. I mean it seriously. I have no head. What actually happened was something absurdly simple and unspectacular. Just for the moment, I stopped thinking. Reason and imagination and all mental chatter died away. For once, words really failed me. I forgot my name, my humanness, my thingness, all that could be called me or mine. Past and future dropped away. It was as if I had been born that instant, brand new, mindless, innocent of all memories. There existed only the now, that present moment, and what was clearly given in it. 
To look was enough. And what I found was khakied trouser legs terminating downward in a pair of brown shoes, khaki sleeves terminating sideways in a pair of pink hands, and khaki shirt front terminating upwards, absolutely nothing whatsoever, certainly not a head. It was all quite literally breathtaking. I seemed to stop breathing altogether, absorbed in the given. Here it was, this superb, serene, brightly shining, in the clear, clean air, alone and unsupported, mysteriously suspended in the void, and utterly free of me, unstained by any observer. Its total presence was my total absence, body and soul, lighter than air, clearer than glass, although released for, altogether released from myself, I was nowhere around. Okay, so he was on some mountainside. And in the quiet of that, what was his insight was that there was just awareness, that it wasn't coming from this head. Now just see in the moment, because this is the point of it, is for us to have a sort of a personal experience of that very thing. Just be quiet with yourself and just look. Pretend like it's not coming from your head. And therefore, the chatter in your head isn't describing what is being seen. The view of what is being seen is larger than whatever chatter remains. And you can sense, perhaps, where that insight was pointing. And from time to time, not to, not, not as a comic relief, but just, just sit down and quiet and see whether you have a head or not. Don't tell anybody what you're doing. The direct wordless knowing. But once the knowing is elaborated on the mind, by the mind, and we get a sense of perspective to what is being known, then you're going to have a head. And the mind will roll on, and that will be your all. Your all, from that perspective, will be one enlaced in time, distance, separation, and the laws that accompany that particular paradigm which is the laws of suffering. Because anytime you have a distortion of perception, then there has to be some counter component within that distortion. There has to be some flaw, something that doesn't work. And that is the fact of our struggles in life, our conflicts. The reason we have that is because this flaw occurs. And at some point, the flaws in your life, in our lives, the disadvantages of the paradigm we have assumed will become overwhelming.
and then you have to surrender to them. I was watching uh, one of the SIF films. It was called uh, Crash Reel. If you get a chance to see it, see it. I don't often recommend movies, but to give you, it's so relevant, I just have to give you a, a little synopsis. And it's about a snowboarder who uh, was right up there with the best. In fact, he was going to be in the Olympics. They, at some points, he was the best, and other times, this other person was the best snowboarder. But they were um, just showing his life and the trophies he was winning, and he was like 60 days out from the Olympics. And he has a crash in which his brain is damaged. And in the state where he can't possibly snowboard, his only relevance to life is snowboarding. He can't drop it. He just can't drop it. It's too powerful of an image for him, too powerful of an enticement, of an enjoyment. And he just finds it impossible to give it up. And so he tries to go out and snowboard, even with his, the doctors, the neurologists, saying to him, listen, to you. if you fall one more time, you will have no mind to get up with. That's how tentative this situation is for you. But he doesn't listen. He just goes out. And then it's the fact that when he goes out and tries to snowboard that he can't even hardly stand up on the board anymore. That is the revelation that allows him to give up snowboarding. In hospice care, when people are dying, you have that conversation with them. But until they actually come to the fact that they are dying, they live the fact that they are dying. Will they ever release and surrender to that experience? Up until then, it's just a struggle. So too, until we live the fact of this flaw in the distortion, not just as an intellectual, sure I know, first noble truth, but actually live it. Actually live it, embody it, see it, realize it. That this is a flaw. Then our lives just won't change. We won't give up snowboarding or whatever each of our excitements are. The Buddha in another sermon, just to close, in his third sermon, he called the fire sermon. Samyutta 35.28. And what is it? He said, these are fire ascetics he was talking to. These monks who would walk, walk over burning coals and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what they were doing, but they are fire ascetics. He says, and so he brought this sermon to bear, which is a very authentic teaching for that group of people, but he says, what, and what is it that's burning? The I, the sense of myself is burning. The wanting, the discontentedness of the mind is burning. There's the burning of the I, there's the wanting of the object, there's the discontentedness of the mind. It is all burning. It is all burning. It is because it's distorted. There's a flaw here. That's all. 
So if we, do, if we feel that we are between intentions, that somehow the intention to understand and to uplift this flaw so that it can be observed and seen, which it can be, if we just don't have the energy to do that or the interest to do it, then let us turn to the fact of the struggle we have and work in living the flaw. And that will have its own effect upon our curiosity and interest and determination to see the flaw itself. Is your life working? Maybe sometimes, maybe not. And why isn't it working? What are you expecting from it, you see? Is this enough? All of those questions have relevance for us going forward. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? It's within, it's within reach. I'm not suggesting something that isn't within reach. The only thing that inhibits seeing it is a divided intention. Is that the flaw also, you know, can be really nice sometimes. I mean, think of last year's vacation. Okay. If there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to see what I could do. Or did my speech have a big flaw? <laughs> yes, Muffet. Um, it, it, it's kind of hard to know what to do with not having an actual present or actual past and future. Um, it seems freeing, but also uh, disorienting. Yes, you don't. You, the question is: uh, It seems very disorienting uh, not to have a past or future. If you only know the past or future, you only know your life as it's not being lived. Okay. If you realize the relativity of the past and future, so that yes, you continue to use the information that was imparted to you previously in your choices going forward but you live kind of simultaneously between the one and the other so that it's relative, that, you're, that there's nothing that is escaping the sense of now and yet you're also getting up and walking somewhere and you're using your information and your intellect many times in order to, dis to discern the path you're taking and the direction you're going and what's going to be encountered all along the way. So it's not at the expense of your knowledge, but it's not 
at the expense of a greater sense of the present being all there is. So within the present, as we live the present, you can navigate perfectly using the information that is already contained and acquired through new experiences. And and reflective reasoning has its point sometimes, yeah. Uh, You know, if you go, oh, now what was that person's name? I met him last week. You know, that you are expected. The the formless isn't going to tell you that person's name (laughs) while you sit there and go. (laughs) That's going to be your mind, your brain, if it comes up with it at all. Right? So you still have the capacities. Nothing is taken away. Nothing is taken away. You just have a greater context to experience what you have been experienced in a very limited way now. It's like you get out of a closet in which all you've lived with is in a closet into a vast field where you not only have the whatever was in the closet at hand, but you have much more space to maneuver as well. The capacity to be surprised, and so how would you? Well, if, if I'm so caught up in what I'm thinking, I don't notice anything. But if I'm if I'm not so caught up, then whatever actually is present, that's new. Is new. Okay, so I'll use the word new rather than surprise. Surprise has a kind of a shock quality to it, right? And so it's not shocking. It's smooth, right? But it's new. It's refreshing, right? When you like, if you, you know, when something's truly new, it's interesting. It's not shocking. Right? Well, in this case, it's not. So, I'm just, okay, so it's, it's, it's new. It's interesting. That's all. Yes. Uh, did you phrase it that way, Rodney? Because the description of shocking is coming from your past experiences and is a referential sort of. For surprise? To, yeah. The defi- I don't know what the definition of surprise is, but from my knowledge, it has some. <laughs> that. That. <laughs> Yes, the moment-to-moment living of what I just said and how thought and... and First of all, none of you are off course, okay? So you you aren't somewhere other than where you should be. That's just the nature. All of us are uh, firmly on the path at our own pace, which is always individual, uh, for this. And all you just... you, You can... Uh, encourage if you're you can't really force yourself forward more than what is already occurring uh, but you can shape out some lethargy and you can uh, 
provide yourself an avenue for more interest uh, rather than just being kind of uh, comforted uh, by the sameness of your life. Uh, so there's always a way that you can, you can brush yourself off and, and bring a little more attention to bear upon your life. But the course is pretty well set for almost everyone in here. And, uh, you know, you're walking it at the speed that you need to. And part of the way it's going to present itself and everyone that I know is that there are going to be many more moments of forgetfulness than there are of awareness. You're going to be, and you're going to think that, you know, you're as good as the moments of awareness. No, you're as good as both of those because the moments of forgetfulness also invite a certain understanding in living them. Or how would you have ever even awakened to this amount of attention if those moments were completely blank and had nothing to offer? They do have something to offer because even though the awareness is consumed, it's still there and catches little brief moments of, of events or whatever that help it mature. So the many moments of being uh, drugged within the mind of your uh, of yourself, and the few moments of of aliveness and awareness we have outside of that, both of those work cooperatively to inform towards greater awareness. You learn not to begrudge one. At the same time the heart. You can't be passive in this. This is a very active expression of, of awareness. It's that you're not a passive, oh, it'll take care of itself, I'm doing fine, I don't really need to do anything, I'm just going home and watch a movie. It needs you to show up for it. Right? And so whatever the compelling need, that's a comp- that needs you. It needs your attention. It needs your attention. So it's not a passive, it's not, and given that attention, there are going to be, again, many moments of of forgetfulness and a few moments of remembrance. And that'll start shifting over time. Yes. Yes, you. Right. Right. Comes up because it's like almost like I wonder what will arise. Very good. Yes, good. Okay, so the sense of curiosity you're talking about, sometimes thinking, but true curiosity, if you think too much, you won't be curious, will you? Uh, So true curiosity is kind of a confrontation with wonder. Right? So you go, it's like it holds you kind of spellbound. Right? Curio- what is it? It's like when you genuinely wonder what something is, you're not full of thought about what that thing is because you're trying to just see what it is. Right? The wanting to see what it is arrests the thoughts. Right? So that sense of, see how close that 
is to the sense of having no head. Right? You see? So, when you have curiosity, curiosity, I mean, each of these words have an authentic heart expression and are often uh, have a secondary mental cover over, layered over. So curiosity, when it's authentic, has that sense of wonderment about it. And that's coming from the heart. But then there's the intellectual curiosity that takes that curiosity and makes it into a mental frame of reference where it's just curious for greater knowledge. So I've got to read about this. I want to read about that. And so we're forgetting so much the sense of curiosity for the accumulation of more facts. Right? So this isn't about accumulating more facts. It's about that sense of awe. A-W-E. Okay? Yeah. Should we call it a night? Okay, all good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.